Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is sponsored by our mates from Pablo and Rusty's, a team dedicated to sourcing and roasting one of our favourite things here in the Dumbo Feather office, coffee. We are currently enjoying the Trailblazer blend, which goes perfectly when talking about our latest issue, creating the next economy. Pablo and Rusty's even have an exclusive subscription offer for Dumbo Feather readers, which includes delivery so you never run out of coffee again. Plus, they're a B Corp, a group of businesses dedicated to social and environmental change, all while making a buck. Check out the subscription offer and more at DumboFeather.com. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests doing their bit to make the world better. I'm Xander Sandbrook from Dumbo Feather, and our guest this month is Ronnie Khan, chatting with Dr. Monty Badami for a live event run by our friends at the School of Life. Ronnie explores the topic of generosity, something she knows a lot about. Driven by a passion to make a difference and stop good food going to waste, Ronnie founded Oz Harvest and grew it to become Australia's leading food rescue organisation. In this episode, we hear about Ronnie's personal journey as well as her advice on how we can all learn to open our hearts and be more generous in our daily lives. Her joy is infectious, and as Monty says in this conversation, you could describe her as incredible, but it's just not a good enough word. Now, Ronnie, I would love to start um, by asking, do you think there is something that defines or distinguishes a generous act? Is there, is there some way of classifying an act of generosity? And if so, how do you classify it? I think that generosity is about the intention, when intention and action come together. So many of us think about things we could, should, must, might, maybe one day we'll do. I've probably had a thousand people over the last 10 years come to me and say, one day, one day when I've paid off the mortgage, when I've got a better job, when I've won the lottery, seriously, you can't imagine how many people still believe they might win the lottery. I wish them luck. It's great. I, I, you know, I occasionally I buy a lottery ticket and I've spent it before I even have won it. But the point is, I say to them, you know, all we really have is now and so plotting and planning for what you're going to do one day, it's about connecting that thought and that action. So for me, generosity is about thinking of what it is that you could do. And, and generosity is not just about giving money, not in any way. It's about giving our time. It's about giving a gesture. It's about coming to work 
with an extra sandwich because you think somebody might enjoy what you've made. It's about pouring two cups of coffee when you go to the coffee machine and coming back and saying, anybody want a coffee? Because as sure as hell, somebody would like one and just hadn't got up and got it yet. It's every little way that, for me, it's about thinking about somebody else because all I can share with each and every one of you from my own personal experience is that no getting has ever, ever felt as good as giving does. Thank you. <clears throat> I read in the recent Dumbo Feather. <laughs> I didn't read it. <laughs> I did the interview and then hope to God that the article was good. <laughs> you said some great things. And what I would like to know is how did generosity become such an important value or purpose in your life? So growing up, um, so I was born in South Africa during the apartheid era. And when I think about it, my parents actually, among themselves and obviously in alignment with their beliefs, made a huge decision. And that decision for them, I, I think, was a huge act of generosity. For them, that decision that they made was that we do not agree with the system and we are going to give our children the values that we believe in. And that was brave and courageous in a society where to show that was, was scary. Mm -hmm. And so they subliminally, and in the school that they put us in, at great effort, because they chose a school that had very liberal ideas that they couldn't afford to send us to. But so that act of generosity, I was always aware, though, that whilst we didn't have money, I didn't lack anything. So intrinsically, I learned that then. And then I think you just, as you grow older, as you start, you know, you want things. We want so much. And there comes a time in your life when you just realize that that wanting does not fill your soul. Mm. And so there comes a time that you can translate that wanting to sharing and giving. Mm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that time. Uh, was there like a, um, when did you decide to dedicate your life to being so generous? Or, do you have like I a... I didn't. You didn't? No. Was, was I never a made life? a decision to be a generous person. <laughs> I made a decision to find selfishly, to find ah. meaning and purpose for me. Mm, mm. And could not have ever known how it would translate mm. into this joy and the gratitude of waking up every single day mm. with with joy of knowing that that what we do now makes such a difference. Mm. So I, I honestly, growing up as a child, I never planned to run a charity. I was just the usual spoiled little person. And really it was only, you know, on realizing that I had spent a lot of time trying to trying to fulfill and, and, and needing things and wanting a house and realizing that first house, you know, when I went to buy that very first house. We only had, and it sounds so pathetic now because you can't even buy a garage for that, but we only had $180,000 when I went to buy our first house. But every house I wanted was two fifty. 
And then we had 350 in the house I, when we ne needed to go to our next house. And then everything I wanted was 520. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but it kept happening. And so you reach a point. I reached a point that I wanted to know what more? What was more? What, what had I been put on this earth for? It couldn't have been just for more shoes and more jewellery. <laughs> just couldn't have. Because whoever created us couldn't have thought that was all I needed. <laughs> Sometimes it's still hard to believe that. <laughs> was there a light bulb moment for you? Um, there actually was, in mm. that the light bulb moment was really a, the action moment. Mm. You know... I, I kind of knew that I definitely wanted to do something. And, and what I knew was food and I knew that there were people in need. So I knew that that could be something that I could connect. Mm. And, and had started doing that already in my own life. Because of my business, I kept creating beautiful food. You know, food is a way of showing generosity. And it was a way of me definitely showing that my clients were successful and had status and could show how how successful they'd been. And so when there was food left over, I would take that food and hadn't quite pulled it all together that I knew that if I had that need that there must be other people who had that same need. But when I went to visit South Africa, I went to this just to connect with my very old friend. She is now 90. She wasn't 90 then, but she was older than me, little. And um, and she took me to Soweto. And for any of you that have ever been to South Africa, Soweto is still an absolute shanty town, even though it's now extraordinary, extraordinarily a better place to live. It's still made up of brick walls connected with corrugated iron and less cardboard, but still cardboard. And as we drove into Soweto, Selma turned around and said, under her breath, I, I was responsible for electricity in Soweto. And, and I, I say it and I, the hairs on my arms still stand up because just thinking, wow, what can it be like to know that you've done something that makes that amount of difference to that many people? And before we'd even got to the AIDS clinic she'd set up, which is why I was going with her into Soweto, I already knew that that's what I was going to do. I wanted to know what it felt like to make that kind of difference to that many people and that I was going to rescue food and deliver it to hungry people. Didn't know how, but I knew the why. <laughs> and uh, uh, you've mentioned Selma. <clears throat> what an amazing story. You've mentioned your parents. Uh, even just sharing the story itself, I mean, I can't help but feel it has this power to transform. And you, you were obviously transformed by your experiences with your parents and with Selma. I'm interested, what about um, uh, uh, some of the ideas that have forged your, idea, your uh, perspective or your worldview on generosity? Were there any theories or theorists or writers or, or big thinkers that helped to transform your position and shape your worldview? Look, I read... Anything I can lay my hands on. I love reading self-help books. I read inspirational books. I read every leader. Every day I want to learn something. So, of course, Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom is a major inspiration to me. But I honestly think that it, it was 
you know, the beautiful act of when I decided to start Oz Harvest, when I came back like this woman possessed, just saying, I'm going to start a food rescue organization and, and, and that's what I'm going to do. And the first meeting I went to when the Macquarie Foundation said, so do you have a business plan? I said, oh yeah, I'm going to rescue food and deliver it to people in need. <laughs> but that huge act of generosity that they believed in me enough to give me seed funding. And they suggested I go and see, at that time, Greg Goodman, who was uh, Goodman, it was Macquarie Goodman. Greg Goodman is an industrial property developer. Um, and he does not have the name Goodman for nothing. Seriously. So when I walked into that very first meeting, there were 12 men in black suits sitting around an oval table. And I'd never walked into a boardroom because I'd run my own business and clearly I wouldn't have managed very long in anybody's boardroom. <laughs> and I walked in and he said, so why are you here? I said, well, my name's Ronnie Khan and I've come to tell you that I'm going to start a food rescue organization and what I want... He said, so what is it you want? I said, well, you've got property and my current office is in Alexandria and I've noticed there's an industrial site near me and I'd love a little office. He said, okay. Like, it took three seconds. And I said, oh, uh, okay. He said, so what else do you want? Now, I had not come prepared to ask for anything else. So I said, well, I I'm going to need a van. He said, okay. What else do you want? I said, two vans? <laughs> he said, okay. I said, I'm out of here. <laughs> and those were my first two vans, and they still give us our space for free, wherever they can. So that is a good man. That's a good man. I love that uh, you got uh, access to the seed funding, which you have nurtured, and you're now harvesting to make such a wonderful difference yeah. in people's lives. And I wondered if you could share a little bit of the story of that, or the journey of the food, for example. We touched on it before. How does the food get from point A to point B? Well, again, masses and masses of acts of generosity. Mm. So the food that we rescue is all donated, and... Unlike in two other countries that I know of, the US and in the UK, if you're a food donor and you give away your food, you can write it off. It's a tax deduction. So there's actually a huge incentive to give away your food. Um, it's still a big issue and it's still huge to get to people. But in Australia, that's never going to happen. The tax, when I went to try and have suggest that Perhaps that would be a good thing to minimise food waste. Our ATO officials said, that's double dipping. <laughs> Not going to happen here. <laughs> so the truth is, I just started asking people for food. And I started with the few people that I knew where I would do my shopping. Um, but today we collect food from over 3,500 food donors. These are people who... And, and, and in fact, the hugest act of generosity was really... It was little people who gave me food in the beginning. It was little mum and pop businesses who felt so good knowing that in some way they were contributing. Mm. And, and they were the core because then they would tell other people. Mm. And then other people would call us. And, you know, the us was me in the beginning. And people would call me and say, I see your vans everywhere. There was one van running around in circles. <laughs> so cool <laughs> yeah and now we have 50 
Yeah, wow. Maybe 52. I think in the last few days, our vans, two vans had babies. Because <laughs> if you ever see a van on the road, it is only because somebody's given it to us or paid for it. Yeah, we do not... Everything we do. Mm. I want to come back to the little people in a minute. But before we do, um, you know, obviously you were so influential in changing the Civil Liabilities Amendment Act that made it possible for organisations to give uh, and to donate to organisations like yourself without getting into trouble. Can you tell me a little bit? Of, tell us a little bit about that and, and the challenges that were involved, and what challenges you're still facing uh, in this world where there is generosity, but there are also limitations. There are none. <laughs> <laughs> if I believed there were limitations, would I be sitting up here talking to these people? I just don't believe it. Seriously, even the challenges. You know, the reason I went to have the law changed was because we'd started giving to these people who really... I was working with beautiful caterers, top caterers in my business. When I said, we're going to rescue food, rather than you having to throw it away at the end of events. I mean, it was a blessing for them and a blessing for the people we give food to. And then more businesses came on board. Mm. And then some of the big businesses said, well, we'll never be able to give you food. I said, why not? Mm. They said, because we, we, we worried about our own liability. And mm. so we, um, I got a, <laughs> okay, this is funny, I think. Maybe you won't think so. <laughs> but <laughs> in my business, I was an event producer, and it was just after the Olympics, our first Olympics here. And in my business as an event producer, clearly I'm an, I, I had never heard the word entrepreneur before I started but clearly I was entrepreneurial because the Olympics were coming on and not only did I want to do events, I suddenly thought, oh, well, we could also do, you know, accommodation. Everybody, people who were coming in from overseas needed accommodation as well as going to events. Anyway, we had a whole range of events we were going to and a client called in and booked, I think, $350,000 of accommodation. That was a lot of money then. And paid their deposit, I think they paid, whatever, $75,000. And then as we got closer and we were asking for the rest of their money, they reneged and then started demanding their deposit back. So I'd gone to one of the major law firms and said, I, need, I mean, it's just a little business. I said, I think I need your help. I've got this big problem. This big company has paid and now they're demanding. Anyway, keep that in suspense. Years go by, and now I decide to start Oz Harvest. And I call this big law firm. And, and he says, sure, I'll see you, like in a flash. And I'm thinking, wow, I wonder why he's so keen. I'd forgotten that in his mind, that was the last time he'd, you know, I had a big problem, and I needed a big solution, and there was money to be exchanged. And now I walked in, and there were like five people in the room waiting to hear my story. I said, well, why are there all these people here? He said, well, one, we're interested to know what your challenge is today. I said, well, my challenge is I need you to work for me for free to help me change the law. He said, oh. <laughs> but he pulled together a bunch of pro bono. It was Henry Davis York at the time. And he pulled together a bunch of pro bono lawyers and together they lobbied to have the law changed in New South Wales. And by the time, that was in 2005. And by the time 
we needed to change the law. Then we were only in New South Wales, so that's all I was worried about. But then the ACT came on and we we did that again in the ACT and then I had a fabulous board member who was a lawyer and part of the legal society and when it came to changing the laws in Queensland and South Australia, yeah, by then there was a precedent and a track record and it was much easier to do. Your, uh, uh, your passion, your sense of purpose, um, your, the fact that you, um, you see the opportunity in the challenge, that you're not discouraged by the limitations. I mean, I mean I'd like to say it's inspiring, but it's just not a good enough word. It's, you know, what, what <laughs> there is so much power that, that, that you have, that you are sharing. Um, and so I want to bring this back to the little people, that you have had this amazing ability to transform so many lives, but that the, the changes, the things that have happened in Oz Harvest have been the result of the acts of generosity of, of little people. Or, or, and so I want to ask you, you know, with regards to us as, as everyday people, how can we um, in the contemporary world live a more generous life? For me, it just empowers me. It empowers mm. me to know that something... I've done might affect somebody. So I'll share our Nourish story from... So our Nourish program is a program where we take kids from the agencies that we support um, and we put them through six-month hospitality training. But it's life skills. These kids shuffle in on the first day, these are kids that have never had a positive learning experience. They've never had anybody invest anything in them. And they, six months later, they've learned how to dress, how to get there on time, how to, to have a life skill. They learn certain one and two. Many of those kids have gone back to school or gone on to TAFE. But what I really wanted to share with you was at our last graduation, which is like my best thing in the whole world. It's what motivates me. It's what get, gets me up in the morning because this is, this is changing lives. This is breaking the cycle of intergenerational poverty. And two kids in the Adelaide Nourish, the last graduation, stood up and they'd only met. It wasn't like they'd known each other. So two kids had gone through the class, stood up and said... Well, what we want to share with you... Now, they couldn't even talk before they walked in publicly. And there was a whole group of people. Some of them... Most of them didn't have a parent or a family member. They had foster carers or friends who were there to watch them graduate. And these two kids said, we are going to open a family restaurant. It's going to be called the Harvest Restaurant. Honestly, by now I'm like standing there and absolutely boring, bawling. And, you know, they described the food that they were going to serve and that they first had to do more training and more this, but that was their aspiration. By the time they'd ended, I had already jumped up to hug them and said, whatever it is you need, we're going to help you make it happen. <laughs> but, you know, so that is just so enriching. I actually want to share another story because this is an this yeah this is again a very special thing that happened to me and how privileged I am. I was asked to talk to five thousand 
15 year olds. I have to tell you, you think, what are you going to say to 5,000 15 year olds that's going to keep them engaged for three quarters of an hour or half an hour? And it was at, in the convention center in an amphitheater. And so there were kids from here to the very back. And I don't know, I just got on and I just rocked. I just shared stories. I just told, I just, I just had fun sharing some things that I had been doing. And then it was question time. And from the very back, so people ran around with microphones, and from the very back, a kid with a hoodie, a 15-year-old with a hoodie, stood up. I could not, he was miles away, and I couldn't see his face. He stood up and he just said, I want to thank you. I've received food from Oz Harvest. And I've got a question to ask you. And he said, I want to know what happens when you have a bad day. So I said, first of all, thank you so much for your courage and bravery to share with us. And thank you, I'm so, so thrilled that the food that we have has helped you. I said, and what happens when I have a bad day is I wake up every morning and I have a choice whether I have a good day or bad day. And I've chosen every single day of my life to have a good day. This kid said, thank you. This might have changed my life. Can I please have a hug? <laughs> and he bounded down from the top of the... I'd nearly jumped off the stage, which was a big... <laughs> but they held me back and someone helped me and I ran down and we had a hug. So generosity is just about giving somebody a hug. My people do know that I pay them in hugs. <laughs> They're nodding. <laughs> this, you've told us these amazing stories about how you have rallied for change. You've, you've walked into boardrooms. You've walked into government. You've done these amazing things. But your passion, your power, your purpose, um, you know, the, the generosity that exudes from you, the joy that exudes from you, it is powerful. It is transformative. Uh, but what I want to ask you now is about, you know, what, do, what can we tap into? It, it's similar to the question of that young man. What can we tap into? How can we turn that generosity back in on ourselves so that we can uh, um, hold on to some of the energy so that we can keep living a generous life when we are depleted, when sometimes we are depleted and sometimes we do have a bad day? Look, I think... The truth is I really do believe and live what I said. I have a choice every single day. But of course, things happen and bad things happen. But each and every one of those, and, and I, I hate jargon and I hate, but it is an opportunity. It is an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for digging deep. Generosity begets goodness, begets joy, begets happiness, begets a reason to live that's beyond just our own small, tiny little selves. So you don't have to look too far. Just do it. Yeah, I guess I, I think that I did imbibe. I, I, had, I always thought that my role model was my mother until my father died. When my, my mother was this extraordinarily positive, energetic woman, when my father had an accident and was in hospital for two years, 
She just did what needed to be do, done. She baked 100 cakes. In fact, in fact, my, my food delivery life started when I was seven. I didn't even remember <laughs> because she'd bake 100 cakes a day and then I was the one tasked to go with her to deliver them. And I hated it. But the point is, I did do it. But she never hated anything. She just smiled. But when I realized when my father died, after living a life of 50 years with a major, he'd had this accident. He was in hospital for two years. He landed up with one stiff leg, one leg in a caliper. He was an architect. It didn't stop him climbing up ladders. He had a car modified so that he could still drive. So I didn't realize that, in fact, he was the pure embodiment of making the best of every situation. Yeah. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have some questions. <laughs> Hi, Nani. Um, thank you so much for your beautiful story. It really touched both of us. I wanted to ask you, how did you come to the realization of your why? And how has it affected you um, intuitively and authentically and organically as a person? So you need to know that I started as Harvest before Simon Sinek taught us all about the why. But when I heard him, I realized, oh my God, that's why Oz Harvest is so successful. Because we started, the reason I started Oz Harvest was because of the why. It wasn't the how. It was there was all this food going to waste. And I wanted to get that food to hungry people. The how was just how we did it. But why we do it is because good food should not go to waste. And people should not be hungry all the time that there is good food. I just need, I knew there was food and I knew there were people. And that did not make sense. One of the, one of the things I've learned and realized over the last 13 years is that I found my purpose because I solved a problem that I had. And that's a clue. Because if you've got a problem, what often we do is, shit, why doesn't somebody fix it? Oftentimes, if you fix the problem, it could also be a problem that is solved for somebody else. Hi, Bonnie. Um, this is a bit of a sneaky personal question. Um, because I saw you speak at a Maureen Hennessy conference at Palazzo Versace. Like oh, my ago. God. No. Yeah. Did I talk you? Did. <laughs> you were there. And um, I'm a high school teacher now. Um, and your talk was part of that journey. And so I've often thought when I've told that story, everyone's like, you know, you're living a high life, you're selling boost, you're working for a luxury brand, and now you're teaching high school students. And I'm always like, well, you know, I saw the founder of Oz Harvest and she's speaking at this conference, and, and everyone says, what was she doing there? And I'm just like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can remember when I went to Palazzo Versace because I had a client who called me and said, organize me a wedding for 60 people somewhere and organize everything for, the first, for, the, for all 50 people for five days. But I'll tell you, you know, client, corporates invite me to talk all over the country and in fact, often around the world to, to share my story and hopefully it will connect First of all, the most important thing you said, and I, I, I want to thank you so much. 
I'm so touched that if anything I said made a difference to you. That's incredibly. Thank you for your generosity in sharing that. Thank you. Um, I went into Woolworths a few weeks ago, and I come from a farming background. There was a CWA stand out front of the Woolworths, and they were collecting all sorts of products for local farmers. And the sign on the front said, Farms going hungry. And I almost burst into tears. Um, I suppose everyone who's here has a story of seeing people in need. And, and I imagine a lot of people here are feeling, as I do, that joining the CWA to be part of something like that doesn't feel like it's enough. So what, given that it's a solution we're looking for, where do we take that from this room to make a difference? So we are all very, very, very powerful, each and every one of us. Our actions are incredibly powerful. So when we purchase from stores, stores put into the stores what they think we want to buy, and when we buy it, they sell it to us. One of the big battles for us is how we can teach all of us again to value food, to value the food supply chain, to understand the value that an ugly potato costs exactly the same to produce from a beautiful potato. So our problem is we... we have lost value for farmers. So if you're in a farming area and your farmers are going hungry, I mean, it is beyond tragic. It is outrageous. Recently, I was in a supermarket and talking about, for me, the ugly fruit and veg and said, well, what I want to see is that the whole supermarket is filled with ugly fruit and veg, not just this section. It is the biggest growing sector in their supermarket. We should, we should all be proud to know. But I worry because it's because it's cheaper and not necessarily because people want to value the fact that it tastes exactly the same, if not sometimes even better. So I think really, yes, we are solution-based. My goal is to put our harvest out of business. We've got our government to commit and agree to minimize food waste by 50% by 2030. So if we minimize food waste, we've got to teach people how to look after themselves and how to live a sustainable life. So our intention is to not maintain the status quo, it's to minimize it. But we all have to think every time we purchase. You know, every time you purchase cherries that are not in season, that have been imported from somewhere else, we are to blame. We are at fault. We have to shift and change our behavior. Because only when we stop buying cherries that come from America or stop buying lemons that come from somewhere else will our supermarkets not have it on their shelves. And we need to write letters to our politicians and say, stop selling our farms. We want local produce. We did an exercise. We went, I sent some of my people five people with $500 each into a supermarket 
to different supermarkets, so this was just any, and said, you have to come back only with Australian produce. Do you know that they could not spend $500? And it took them about three hours of reading labels. Oh, shit, put it down, put it down. So we are to blame. We cannot, supermarkets are run by people, and they run by people who want to make money. And so we have power, so much power. Don't ever minimize the power that you have. We love Ronnie and could listen to her stories all night. We want to thank her for sharing her wisdom so generously and openly with us, and also Monty and the School of Life for allowing us to record this conversation. You can read more about Ronnie in our conversation with her from issue 53 of Dumbo Feather, the future of power issue. You can also find out more information about Oz Harvest on their site. We've provided a link in the show notes for you. This conversation was produced by our digital editor, Lizzie Martin, and the music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for our next conversation or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favorite pod channel. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast is sponsored by Who Gives a Crap. They make pretty, super soft toilet paper, tissues and paper towels without doing harm to trees. And they donate 50% of profits to help build toilets in developing countries. Yep, good for your bum and good for the world. To find out how you can support Who Gives a Crap and other incredible B Corps, head to our site.